um, it really, it touches me deeply um, yes. to be able to um, hear you again and, uh, and to recall that. Yes. So, so it's a pleasure about... seeing you again. Thank you, Victor, for inviting me. I'm so excited. So what I'm going to do is mute everyone. Michael, you'll have to unmute yourself after that. And then we'll get them in later. Yeah. Well, I want to say hi from Dayton. Oh, yeah, Lisa. Yeah, Lisa, is, yeah. Lisa is in Dayton. <laughs> hi, Michael. You, yes, you gave us several uh, from the Dayton Mediation Center. You gave us several um, uh, workshops. And um, I was actually, I'm Joan's friend also. So I remember you from way back. You also inspired me. I had a conversation with you about how I'm using some of your um, circle of the perfection, the art of the perfect profession. Oh, that's great. And you know, it was lovely to see you again, Lisa. And yesterday um, I had, I spent an hour talking with Cherise Kirsten. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. She was also a student at Antioch. Yes, Charisse was. In fact, Charisse and I um, started mediation in the same training and uh, work a lot together. So Marvelous. great, wonderful. Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to um, see you. And Michael, look, there are not too many people who come here because the problem that has happened is this, one of them, Lisa's show went on for about four hours, 11 minutes. And Andrews went on for four hours, seven minutes. So people have realized they might not be able to sit through the whole thing. So they watch it on YouTube in parts. I can understand. They have to do it in parts. It's four episodes in one show. Right. <laughs> so, right. Oh, my goodness. Well, I noticed that some of them were quite long. And, yeah. Uh, Look, like uh, I told you, if someone's life, you're talking about someone's life, how can you at all be able to, sh to cut it short? I, I'm not going to cut it short. So that's how it is. So anyway, let, let people know that... If you want to learn about reflective practice, you have to read this book or contact Michael directly. Here, we're only talking about Michael's life and his journey in life. So please read it. And Michael, that, yeah, you want to tell them about the book? You can always tell them about the book. I was, yeah, what I was going to say is that um, there are a couple of books I'm, I will be mentioning as part of our conversation. And there, um, I didn't put it on the slide, but there because I didn't know whether it's appropriate. But if anybody wants to write to me, um, uh, I can give them a discount uh, code that the publisher provides. And the same with this book as well. Perfect. So we'll, we'll get to those, I'm sure. Yep. And if not this time, another time. Yep. Okay, so basically, look, Michael, we always have to start from the beginning, which is, of course, you put this wall out. I was very interested to know what this wall was for. So um, I decided to start with this photo, even though it's um, uh, relatively current. I took this photo about five years ago, actually 2016, when I visited the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. um, Kovarsk is the name of the village where my paternal grandfather had lived and from which he emigrated in 1911 to the United States in order to um, uh, uh, avoid conscription into the Tsar's army and also the constant pogroms, the purges that would occur in Jewish communities uh, throughout uh, Eastern Europe and in this case in Lithuania. And so I thought I would start with that because um, not only is it an important memory for me, but it does shape 
Um, it, it, first of all, had he not left, we would not be having this conversation. Uh, it was only because um, he did and came to the United States <clears throat> that I'm able to talk to you today. Um, and, and the fact that uh, <clears throat> on this wall, it's a glass um, wall uh, that's actually on a bridge that connects two parts of the museum. And on the wall are etched in the glass the names of all of the villages throughout Europe where Jews were exterminated. There was just no one left. And that's, that's what happened to everyone that my grandfather had been unable either to bring to, the, to America. And he brought about 140 people um, that he sponsored or uh, people who just chose to stay because they just couldn't believe that anything bad was likely to happen. But what was the feeling that when you're standing there in front of this wall, you've heard everything about this, what is the kind of emotion that you feel at that point? A mixture of incredible sadness. I, I was with a cousin and we were both in tears um, seeing this and knowing what had happened, but also a sense of incredible admiration for our grandfather who um, risked so much to be able to come to the United States and, um, and then successfully brought over so many people, uh, saving them uh, from, uh, from the Holocaust. So we, were, we had a mixture. We, <laughs> at first we cried and then we laughed. And, uh, and we celebrated um, our family's heritage and, uh, and the, the strength, um, the determination of our grandfather is something that runs through uh, everyone in our family. There is just, there's something, whatever it is that we do in our professional lives, in our families, there is this sort of, um, and it's a quiet strength. It isn't projected outward onto anyone. It's about who this person is, who I am. And that's, uh, that's something that we were celebrating that day as well. But you want to tell us a little bit about how your grandfather came in, what kind of a little bit on his story, because that'll also be very interesting. You know, my grandfather, <clears throat> pardon me, spoke very little about about this. And what we know came actually through one of my uncles. Um, my uh, my dad was one of five brothers and the youngest. Uh, he was fourth in line and the youngest is the one who sort of kept some of the family stories together and actually made a, um, uh, an audio recording of some of these stories. So we know that my grandfather was probably 20 years old when he uh, came to America. Um, he had to cross a couple of borders on foot in order to get to Bremen in Germany where he boarded a ship. Um, and the ship took him to um, uh, Galveston, Texas. Corpus Christi, Galveston, that area of Texas. And from there, he boarded a train and headed north because he had uh, two relatives whom he knew of in the US, one in Illinois and one in Michigan. And Illinois was the closer stop on, on the trains going north. So he got off there and, um, and began his work there and, and made money as what was called a rag picker. And that is he collected um, discards from people. Um, he had a push cart that he would take around the town and then sell to scrap dealers. 
And eventually he was able to save up enough money and he bought a horse. And so he had a horse driven cart and, um, and uh, was very, very careful uh, about his money because he needed every penny in order to first bring his fiance, then her parents and his parents, um, and then extended family from there. Uh, One of his brothers uh, came there uh, two others of his brothers emigrated to South Africa. And I have lots of relatives there. Um, uh, so he, he built that and then he became, um, he had this sort of scrap dealership. And, um, and in the 30s, he, um, uh, he set up an auto parts business, selling, first selling used auto parts and then eventually um, uh, new auto parts. And that was the business that my father went into. And he was, uh, you know, from, uh, for all of my dad's life, uh, that's what he did. He, he sold auto parts. But do we have his picture? I mean, this one, who all have uh, this well, picture? This, yeah, this is, this is, <laughs> this is a photo of some of the family that were brought over. And my grandfather is, um, if you look sort of in the middle, you see a woman with a white, oh, there. My grandfather has the tie. Um, And next to him is my grandmother. Oh, if you go, there we are. My grandfather in the tie here. There's a woman behind him with hands on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And to his left is my grandmother, whom I never met. She died before I was born. And next in line, to the right, to to the to our right, their left is my father. Okay. And uh, in line are uh, the other brothers. Uh, the youngest one was too small to be in this photo. I but don't when, know who many of them are. But uh, when do you think this was taken? This would have been taken in the twenties. So not. Yeah. I mean, a lot of okay. So he. I mean, he was instrumental in getting so many people here. You say. Uh, it's extraordinary. Over um, the, the stories are anywhere from uh, somewhere from 100 to 150 people oh, that um, you know, he sponsored and helped um, pay their passage. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> um, that's my grandmother. Uh, her name was Sarah. And um, these are the, my dad and, uh, and his other brothers. And um, my father is um, at the, uh, as we look at the screen on the far left. Okay. Yeah, it's just taken in 1925. You can see from the, the, the license tag on the, um, on the automobile. Eventually one of my uncles uh, became a car dealer and this was the car dealer number license plate that they used for all of the uh, vehicles. Yeah. Interesting and, vehicle. Uh, <laughs> did, you, did you keep this vehicle or not? Did you keep this car? This should have been a nice you know, car to drive around in. <laughs> you would think so, wouldn't you? I would love to. Uh, I'd love, I don't even know, um, I, I don't know enough about antique automobiles to know, even know what sort it is, but he, um, yeah. Um, when I was a boy, they still had a, uh, a junkyard behind the auto parts store. 
and there were a number of old vehicles. And uh, I used to climb in and around them when I wasn't supposed to, because it was it was fairly dangerous. You know, there's a lot of rusted metal parts, but I was just fascinated uh, by them. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Go no, ahead, please. please. No, no, please. I'll, I'll later. You were saying something. I'm sorry. Oh, and, and I ended up working for my father starting at age 10. Uh, and I loved going with him. I would go on Saturday mornings and he would be in the office doing paperwork of some kind or another. And uh, I was given the job of sweeping the floors and uh, they had a machine shop there. This would have been, so I was born in 44. This would have been the, you know, 53, 54. I started doing that. Um, yeah, big push broom, almost as big as I, <laughs> pushing but, it around. But what, who, who, the others in the picture? I mean, who are the others in the picture? The others are my uncles. Um, uh, so the eldest, uh, Milton, is holding the baby. The baby's name is Roland. And um, uh, immediately next to my grandmother is my uncle Roy, uh, who was the Oldsmobile dealer. And... Um, uh, and then at the end, on the opposite end from my father, is my uncle Morris, who became an orthopedic surgeon. My uncle Milton, holding the baby, um, was also, also became an automobile dealer, selling Buick automobiles. And the youngest, Roland, uh, was in business with my dad. Uh, they sold auto parts together. And these are people that you did interact with as you were growing up, and they were all around. We lived in a, um, in a small town in Illinois called Kankakee. And it's about 50 miles south of Chicago. Uh, it's, a, it's in a farming area, um, a lot of corn and soybean fields um, in the community uh, still today. And, um, and it, it happened to be to thrive in part because it was um, uh, two railroad lines passed through the community. One was the north-south line that went from uh, Chicago to New Orleans. And the other was the east-west line that ran from New York City to California. And, uh, and as a result, um, some businesses set up in the community, you know, large uh, companies would set up there because they had rail transport for their products. Uh, but it was a it was a town of maybe 30 or 40, 30,000 people, I would guess. And then the, the neighboring towns nearby would be 3,000, 4,000 people, something like that. So this is um, a family photo. And um, uh, my grandfather, this I, I, I added this because it's the it's the only photo I could find of my great grandfather my paternal father's father. And he's there in the traditional Hasidic beard and black hat. And um, uh, next to him is uh, my, uh, to his right, our left, is my great grandmother. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And my dad is standing immediately next to my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, my grandmother has the large flowers standing in front. Um, uh, most of the people um, I don't know. There's fortunately there's um, uh, one of my cousin's daughters 
uh, has a degree in library science and she specialized in genealogy. And if she were here, she would tell you, oh, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. It's quite remarkable. She, she even found the, um, she went back and found the ship manifest on which my grandfather is listed as coming from Bremen to, um, uh, to Texas. So, yeah. Nice to see that. Nice to see that you have those pictures lying around. A lot of people don't have these pictures. Exactly. Well, one of the, uh, you know, I attribute to a certain amount of this to my mom, who was the, uh, I consider her the family archivist. <clears throat> she had the, I have some of them still, uh, but I've given most of the albums to my daughter to keep, but there were 20 or more um, very thick and very full photo albums um, that go back, um, you know, that include uh, photos like this one. And were you taken well through them? And were you told stories? Were you, did you hear stories um, while you were growing up? Not as many as I wish now that I had. And, uh, and you know, in a way to make up for that, I'm now writing, I, I talk to my children and my grandchildren about them, but I'm also writing this um, kind of a narrative that highlights some things um, in our family so that my my children have heard lots of the stories, but my grandchildren will not have. So, yeah. uh, because the thing right. is, those stories that your great grandfather would have ha had of life, of course, before the war and before I mean, those times, that should have been interesting stories to have. Yeah, I mean, they, they lived in a, um, a very, very poor, small town. And for Jews in Lithuania, it was especially so. Um, you know, when you think about, um, I don't know whether, you know, any of you might have ever seen the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, yeah. But in, in that, uh, Tevya is like my great grandfather. You know, he just, he was, um, he spent his time between uh, studies and, uh, and working a very small patch of land uh, to provide food and, um, and some income for his family. Oh, that was a wonderful movie, but yeah. I was only, I think, yesterday before I was talking to Lisa and I was just telling that there was one dialogue there. Someone asked the rabbi, are there any blessings for the czar? So he says, may God bless him. Keep the czar far away from us. So that's, <laughs> what hey, bro, that's great. It's my favorite line from the whole movie. <laughs> exactly. That's really nice. Yeah. And these are my maternal grandparents. Uh, Jack and Ida, and um, I don't, I, I, I couldn't find um, better old photos of them. Uh, but uh, my my grandfather, um, they they were second generation. Their parents had emigrated to the United States from uh, Eastern Europe, you know, because borders changed. Um, and Arijana must know this more than any of us, uh, the extent to which throughout the 20th century, especially, but even before that, borders changed uh, as a result of, uh, of wars. Um, and um, uh, so I think that, they, that their families probably came from Poland, what is now Poland, uh, that area uh, in the, um, it would be in the Western part of Poland, not too far from Germany. And um, his family, um, my grandfather's family emigrated to Philadelphia and my grandmother's to uh, Chicago. 
I know very little about my grandfather's family, although I met uh, a brother and sister. They were, um, they were part, my, my grandparent, my <clears throat> um, we would see them often because they lived in Chicago. So 50 miles, it was not, uh, it was an event to drive there, but uh, not that far. And, um, my, and my grandmother's um, family, uh, her dad was in the coal business. That's how he made his living um, selling coal. And um, I'm actually, my middle name is named after my maternal great-grandfather, David. Okay. okay. Um, this is my mom and her younger brother. Uh, my mother's name was Shirley and uh, her brother, Jules. Um, this would have been taken, my mother was born in 22. So this would have been in 27, 1927, probably, um, when it was taken. Um, it's amazing to have these pictures around. It's like... It's, it's extraordinary, Vikram. I just, um, I look at them all the time. And um, my parents are deceased. And the, um, on the anniversary of their birth, I send a photo to my brother, to my three children, my brother and his three children um, of uh, one, uh, some photo that I have of either my mother or my father as a way of um, remembering them. And all of, all of, my, all of my children uh, and my brother's children remember my parents very, very well. They were extraordinary influences, not just on him and me, but, uh, but on the grandchildren. But her younger brother, then where was, where was he? What did he do? He um, he went into business with his dad. He sold insurance, and um, um, it was J.P. Levin and Son, and Jules was the son. And then it just became when my grandfather died. Uh, actually, my grandfather retired first um, from the business, and then it was just Levin Insurance. And uh, yeah, he sold primarily life insurance. Um, but you were in touch with them. You were you, you saw them while you were growing up. You were interacting oh, with them. Saw them um, at least monthly. Um, yeah, we had a very very close relationship with him and his wife, who's still alive. Um, uh, and uh, and I'm in con and and he had two children, and I'm in contact with one of them regularly. But, yeah. but is that, I mean, is that normal? Because you, at one point, somewhere you, you hear about the fact that in America, maybe the families are not so, they are not, I mean, people are living in that individualistic life. Is Has that changed over time? Or is, was it unique for you? What was it like? I, I think our family was a little bit unique. Um, uh, I think in part because of my mother's influence. Uh, she really was... Um, she kept in contact. She would write letters. I mean, no email back then. <laughs> you know, we're talking about writing letters. And my mother had this gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful script. She was left-handed. Can always remember her with her arm crooked, you know, her hand crooked in order to be able to um, to write. And um, she kept in, and by phone. And she kept in touch with uh, not just her parents and her brother, um, but my maternal grandmother had. Uh, three sisters and a brother, and each of them had two children, and my mother stayed in touch with her cousins as well. So I knew all of that extended family. 
uh, even though they might not live nearby. Yeah, that must have been good for you. I mean, it's a good thing to have family around, a lot of things to learn from them, lots of things to discuss. I'm sure it must be very nice for you. It was marvelous. And um, unfortunately, in a way, or fortunately, one of my parents' gifts to us, to my brother and me, was the sense that we should follow our own dreams and not feel um, as though we had to do exactly what they would like us to do, that we didn't have to live nearby, um, that we could be loving and close family members even if we didn't see each other as often. But that was really important that what, what, uh, what energized us, what, where our passions were, um, should guide us. That's very nice. That makes yeah. all the difference. Makes yeah. All the difference. There they are. Mm -hmm. um, my parents uh, met through a friend in Chicago. Um, my mother had just finished one year of university um, and they met and this was a, this photo would have been in 1941, I believe. Um, yeah, and they, they married and they moved, she moved to, to Kankakee and uh, uh, set up home there. And that was- And then, then came you. This, then this. came me. I'm, I'm, as you look at the screen, I'm on the left. And uh, my cousin, David, is on the right. Uh, his father was the orthopedic surgeon. And uh, David followed in his footsteps and became a, a general surgeon. Um, but David was born, he, um, his father was on a ship crossing the English Channel. Uh, he was a surgeon crossing the English Channel to patch up the American soldiers who were wounded as a result of the D-Day invasion of Normandy. So he wasn't around. Um, for my cousin's first year of life. Um, my dad had been in the military and was discharged by that time. And so he was at home. And my, uh, my cousin and I, for the first year of our lives, we were literally like this, raised in the same crib. Um, he's three months older than I. And um, it's actually his fault or his mother's fault that, um, that I'm named Michael instead of David. Uh, because in the Eastern European Jewish tradition, you don't name a uh, close relative after someone else. I've never understood why that tradition exists. I, you know, uh, the old folklore is that the angel of death shouldn't mistake one for the other. Um, so you, you never name a child after a living relative, only after a deceased one. And he was given the name of, his mother was Finnish, and he was given the name Soren David, but they called him David. And therefore my mother's idea of, of naming me David after her grandfather went by the wayside and I became Michael David instead. Uh, and he, he and I were very, very close um, up through uh, university. And then uh, in the latter years of university, as we began more to look toward graduate school and what he was going to do in medical school and I in law school, um, uh, we, we never lost touch. We just weren't um, as close. And uh, so, right. I mean, is he around now? Is he he is. He's, okay. he's, uh, he's, he's 
um, uh, next week or the week after he turned 77 and he's still a surgeon. Very nice. Yeah. He, he and I won, yeah. 10 years ago, we had a conversation and I, we talked about retirement and he said, I'm never going to retire. He said, how does it work for surgeons? I mean, the hand stays as uh, stable as it has to. That's what he said. He said, there are only two things that are going to stop me from performing surgery when I would harm a patient or when I die. <laughs> he said, those are the only two things. So um, he's apparently, um, uh, he, by all accounts, um, because I hear from people back in our, and he's still in our hometown um, performing surgery. And I hear from people I know back then that his reputation is uh, as a gifted healer. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Here I am <laughs> once again with my mom, and that's my baby brother, Richard, who is three years younger than I am. And this photo would have been taken in probably 1948. Uh, my brother was born late 47. I wanted to see what that stamp was at the bottom. Oh, uh, this was from the studio. This was, uh, it's a proof. What would happen is that the studios would um, provide you with um, a, a variety. They would take a number of, uh, of photos and then give you these, these stamp photos and say, you choose which you would like. And then we will make up a set of photographs for you as small, as large as you would like. Um, I have one uh, that, that my folks had um, that is uh, uh, 24 by 36 wow. <laughs> inches. You know, it's very large, two by three feet, and it's um, uh, it uh, it's just a me as a as an infant. There are three uh, three images in there, and uh, yeah, I was a uh, uh, can't tell it here, but I was a platinum blonde at the time, just very 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 blonde hair, and when my uh, uh, second child was born, he looked exactly like I did. But by then, my eyes had darkened, my hair had darkened. His mom had very dark hair and dark brown eyes. And people were uh, suggesting that perhaps his father was the mailman and not, uh, not me. So I had my mother send this triptych photo of me and I hung it over his crib. And I would drag my friends in and I'd say, see, look at that child, look at that photo, that's my son. <laughs> so um, it's a silly story, but, uh, but one that, that matters to me a lot. And so this, this you know, there were these um, photo studios um, uh, and this colonial studio was, was the sort of the most popular one in our little town. And what was it, Michael? Now, David, Richard, and you, what was the relationship like growing up? Well, Richard didn't have much of a relationship uh, with David, although I think I have a photo coming up of the three of us um, uh, because he was three years younger. Oh, okay. oh this, we're going to get to that photo. Um, we'll come so back, we'll come back. Yeah, we'll come back yeah. to that. Being three years younger, uh, he really didn't you know, have much of a relationship growing up. We ended up, um, when I was 13 and my brother 10, uh, my parents built a house next door to the house where my cousin David lived. 
and um, and so uh, there was there was more of an opportunity for interaction. We'd be at one person's house or another, but my cousin David, the eldest of six, there were others of his siblings who were more my brother's age, and he would more spend time with them. Okay, but but otherwise between both of you, what was the relationship like? I mean, you were out there looking out for your brother. How did how did I? <laughs> According to, I thought that I was a pretty good older brother. My brother tells me that I was terrible, that I was mean, <laughs> and uh, and always picked on him, and uh, it was it was really it was very very difficult um, growing up. Once we um, got to our teenage years, it began to change, and uh, it then from then on, it was it was a it was a warm relationship, and it changed further. When our parents died, and um, I, I thought to include uh, a photo, but uh, decided not to, of my brother and me, arms around each other, as we are clearing out my parents' house. My father was the second to die, and uh, I call it the orphan boys. We just look forlorn, <laughs> um, close together, you know, arms around each other, clearly affectionate. But with that, just that sense of grief on our faces, and um, but but how old were you people there that time? Uh, let's see, I was fifty-three. Okay. Mm -hmm. When he died, 50, 50, 52 When he died. But but though no concept of sibling rivalry. I'm sorry. No concept of sibling rivalry while you were growing up. Nothing like that. It wasn't. It wasn't a lot of sibling rivalry because because of the age difference. Um, we didn't we didn't have a lot in common and um uh you know i would be off playing with my friends um the house we lived in i had uh four or five friends in the neighborhood and we would always be out doing something running somewhere playing games uh when i got a little bit older and was able to ride my bicycle you know my parents said you can ride your bicycle alone i would ride with my friends, we would ride to a nearby park and play sports. We'd play tennis or baseball or football, basketball. Um, and my brother was too little. You know, we wouldn't have wanted him on the team. And he was also, uh, he, um, until he was probably 14 or 15, he was quite small. And so that also contributed to it. But tell me, Michael, when do the actual memories start? I mean, memories of that childhood, when you look back, when is the earliest that you can remember? Um, the earliest I can remember is probably three or four. Um, uh, I, yeah, I can remember the house that we lived in at the time and things about that house and people in the house. And uh, uh, my brother and I share one thing. We, um, when I was, oh, three or four, um, I was out doing something with one of my uncles and aunts, and um, they dropped me at the house thinking my parents were home, but they weren't, and I was left alone, <clears throat> and I didn't know what to do. The house was open. You know, we lived in a, in a town where you didn't really, at the time, you didn't really worry about locking your doors. Um, this would have been 19, late 1940s. And um, I went inside and I dialed my grandparents in Chicago. It was a long distance call, um, but I knew their number and I still know it today. 
And my, every once in a while, my brother and I joke about the fact that we both can remember my. Uh, that's yeah, that's a real memory. That's real. Grandparents. <laughs> so I can remember. I can remember being in that house. I can remember sitting in the backyard with um, my mom, my grandmother, my great grandmother, and one of my grandmother's sisters. I have a memory, and I couldn't have been more than four years old. I was sitting in one of those little slingback uh, beach chairs, you know, with the stripes, uh, wooden frame, and uh, yeah, and it collapsed. And um, my my hand was uh, I'd been fiddling with it some. I don't think I caused it to collapse. Perhaps I did, but my finger was crushed, and. Um, and I still have a, a scar and a, and a bump in my finger <laughs> from that experience. I remember that quite well. And what about so those? those? Yeah. yeah, it's quite interesting because I don't know. Does everyone have those memories at that age? Do they? I don't know whether that happens. Because, or maybe it's the snatches of things that you have. Maybe it's not. They like, are just right. Um, and and I'm you know I'm, I'm trying to I try to distinguish Vikram between things that I genuinely remember and and uh, and events that people have told me about. Yeah, yeah. because when they were told, told to you, you imagined something and then is that something that is actual or something which is just an image that you made over time? Right. I think maybe that's something that you won't know. Right. Yes, and, and I'm, I'm confident that the, the, the stories that I just told you are actual memories of my own, not, not that have been told to me. But what about those stories that you were told with your, your grandmother and everything while sitting on that chair? What was those? Do you remember those stories? Or the conversations um, happening around you while you were growing well, up? Well, I, I remember. I remember lots of times that I would be with my mother and my grandmother, <clears throat> not just in that backyard, but um, my mother would sometimes take me and uh, into Chicago. We'd take the train. Um, it was about an hour's ride. And then meet up with my grandmother in uh, in downtown Chicago, and spend the day. And I can remember going shopping with them at uh, at different stores. Um, yeah, the story they told me uh, that I have no recollection of is that um, I was a curious kid, and my um, uh, my mom and grandmother were. In, busy in conversation talking about some article in the in the store and I just wandered off. I was just looking around and sort of wondering and a few minutes later they turned around and they couldn't find me and they were panic stricken and they searched all around. This was a very large uh, store. Um, it was called Marshall Fields and it was a huge department store with uh, five or six floors and um, there's a branch of that in, um, in or was in Dayton, I remember, Lisa, and um, a huge place with hundreds of people around. And uh, they were panicked. And uh, the story they told is that they finally went uh, to someone who made an announcement and um, about it uh, over the public address system. And it was reported that I was um, with the security folks that somebody had found me wandering around and take me and they, they came to find me and I was sitting happily um, on a chair 
unaware of what's cream. happening unaware of what's happening around cream. you <laughs> I, was, I was a happy guy i had an ice cream cone um people were treating me nicely i wasn't worried about being lost they were <laughs> but what was chicago like at that time i mean you heard about this what was that mafia and everything what, what was what was it like that that time you know uh, the town i lived in um was uh and and the family that i came from i felt very sheltered and isolated from much of what was happening in the world um and you know um my dad's four brothers and their family so there were 14 grandchildren altogether and my grandfather lived a long time he married twice more after my grandmother and this from my paternal grandfather so there were always family events and activities and that's what it was centered around and um you know i would when i got to probably 8 or 9 i would sometimes look at the newspaper that arrived every morning i was aware aware of the korean war but i didn't really understand about that except that that uh, my mom would help me make um model airplanes and uh, boats you know we would buy kits and she would uh i would glue it all together but my hands my fingers would too fat and clumsy and she would put the she would do the painting she was an artist and so she would this very very fine brush you know she would paint the little details on the items so you know my connection with war that was happening um was was so remote uh you know both because of age and because we were in a sheltered it really felt a very very protect like a cocoon almost um very so good which is good i think to a certain extent it's good because one you can hearing things maybe the negativity of all that you're not touched by so maybe the way you grow up at least you don't have all that in your mind which is the way i think maybe it's a good thing but no, but what was the whole thing is mafia in, the, in chicago when did that happen all that oh that was in the 20s okay that was in the 1920s 19 no, uh, yeah. i'm not the I'm not the best in history so you have to tell <laughs> me <laughs> long, long before um uh yeah long before i came around i'm sure there, there there was all sorts of corruption and crime uh but i wasn't very much aware of it and certainly not in that way it was not so notorious it would be interesting to know otherwise the your the change in american society or places that you lived in over these years that also should be interesting but i think we'll come to that little later when you were you'll be a little older than you would have you would remember changes in society and as you grow up i think we'll take that later because that'll be interesting to find out how you know, things changed first, yeah one of the first memories i have um and it's something you know when we talk about how early experiences can shape who we are was um my family had a um uh a black maid who would come a couple times a week to help my mother with the housework and i can remember going with my father when we would drive her home at night and i was shocked you know it wasn't that we lived in such great luxury we had a very comfortable home and uh you know i never remembered wanting for anything in my life i don't mean that we were showered with things but i never worried about food i never worried about shelter um I never worried about security or safety. The things were just you know part of the air I breathed. 
and to drive to this other area of town, literally, as they say, across the tracks. And, um, and to see the homes and to see that the difficulties, the deprivation, the poverty, I was, um, I, wa I was struck dumb by it. I couldn't believe that that was okay. That, that, that there were these different, I also didn't understand why there were, why people lived on different sides of the track. It made no sense to me. Why was there, you know, the black side of town or back in the early fifties, it would have been the colored side of town versus where we lived. And, um, and I think it, it shaped my sense of sort of a moral sense about fairness and equity and decency and morality um, that, uh, that has influenced me um, for the last 60 some years since I first saw that. And when I got older, I was the one who would drive the maid home and would visit in her home and spend time. Um, and one of the women, um, you know, I knew her children. And, um, uh, and when she died, um, um, my brother and I uh, paid for her funeral. Uh, was, we felt like it was the least we could do. So, but, were you, but, but were you discussing all that? I mean, when you saw all this and you saw the contrast, did you discuss yeah. this with people or it was just something that you... I mean, At first, because I'm, I'm a very introverted person, um, I think, you know, I take things in and I sort of mull them and think about them and wonder about them and I'm curious about them. Um, I'm slow to ask. I try to figure it out for myself. But eventually I do. Um, I even asked the woman, I said, why do you live over there and we live over here? And she said, that's just the way it is. That was her answer, you know, nothing more. She didn't want to talk about it any further. And it was, um, it, I didn't understand then, which I understand now, that it, how unfair it was of me to ask her that question. It was a good question for a little boy to ask. Yeah, yeah um, the innocent, it's an innocent question, totally innocent. She, she knew that. No. She, you know, she knew us, she knew me. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, she was, you know, she was, um, she was beloved in our family in, in, a, in, in, a, in a way, at least by me and, and by my brother. I can say that. I can't say, you know, my, my parents were, were kind and generous. And, um, but there were still these differences and I, I struggled with that. But still, that. you still do that? You still struggle with it? Because I still hear that there are still differences which are there and people are still struggling with that as I see it. Uh, absolutely, Vikram. Um, I, uh, you know, the, um, the uh, young woman I think there's a young woman <laughs> um, um, because she's got to be 25 years younger than I am, Sharice, uh, who is the um, assistant director of the Dayton Mediation Center and whom Lisa knows. And, and Joan, Joan, you may know her. She was at Antioch, I think, at the same time. Um, 
what she and I were one of the things she and I were talking about was the um, what about the, the fundamental inequity and the lack of diversity um, in our profession. How um, it just has, you know, and that and that how easy it is for those of us who have the privilege, at least in this country, the privilege of this color skin, right, can make it in a way that is not as easy, in fact, damn difficult for people um, of color, of all colors. Um, and we were talking about what needs to be done um, in order to um, shift that. What and 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 ultimately, what we were saying is, and um, is that it's it's the it's my responsibility. Um, it's the responsibility of those who've had the privilege, who've had the benefit, to open the doors and make sure not only that the doors stay open, but um, but that whatever is required in order to help somebody access what's on the other side of the door is also provided. Because it's not enough just to open the door and say, well, come on in if you want to, when there are um, all sorts of reasons why people would be um, not yet ready to do that, not yet educated, not supported yet. So we were talking about that. And that's, um, so it's, it's as true today in, in a different way. Um, it's, it's my commitment, my concern, my worry my sense of morality about it is, is as fundamental today as it was when I was a little boy asking those questions. Yeah, no, but, but that little boy, how was he dealing with I mean, I just wanted to, as you grew up, this is one aspect of the person that you are and the thoughts that you were having, because everyone would not have those thoughts. I mean, we're talking about it because you obviously put, thought that there is, a, there is some kind of a discrimination or some kind of, maybe it's, it's not fair what's happening. So you were thinking about that. I was. <clears throat> one of the things, one of the memories I have is that when I was in junior high school, which would have been 12 to ages 12 to 14, basically three years, um, my friends uh, were the, the African American kids as much as the kids whom I knew from, uh, from my other experiences, because the schools I had gone to until junior high school. Uh, in elementary school had had been segregated, not only by geography, not by fiat. <laughs> it's just that there was a, an elementary school that was in Hobby Town. This is what it was called, Hobby Heights. Um, and, and so all of the, the black kids went to that school. So I had no interaction with them. And then we came together in junior school, junior high school, and um, they became my friends. I became their friend. Uh, I, I should say we became friends. And uh, it was really, you know, I, I remember one of the experiences when I was 13, I guess, going on 14, or maybe I was 14. I ran for student council president, lost miserably. <laughs> but um, I came in third out of four. It's all right. It was a it was a great experience. You must you should think maybe it was good. We don't know what direction that would have taken you. 
That's exactly right. I, I might have been a politician today. Exactly. You know? We wouldn't want that to, to happen. We don't want that to happen. No, <laughs> not a bit. Not a bit. Um, no. Um, and so I had a, um, a cookout party to celebrate at the, at the local park, not too far from my home. And I invited all of my Black friends to come. And they said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And I told my mom what I was doing. She said, fantastic, great idea. Um, and my dad too, 100% supportive. And um, the, a dozen of um, my friends came down um, and you could see they were a little hesitant, you know, about, is it okay for me to be in this part of town? I'm not accustomed to being here. I don't usually, I, I've never come here before. And we had a great time. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it didn't solve anything, but it was a gesture that uh, was meaningful to me. And I think in that moment, meaningful to each of them. You know, I don't feel, I don't pride myself on that. I don't feel like I did something grand. It was, if I pride myself, it's on a gesture that's consonant with my values, with my beliefs. And if I do that, then I can feel good about myself. Um, no, the not, thing pride, is, yeah. not pride in the sense of wanting to draw attention to myself of look how great I am. I don't. No, 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 no. The important thing is it was some good intention and it was good intention which you wanted to obviously do whatever you could. I mean, obviously there is a larger society and a lot of things happening there which you cannot change as that at that age, but at least whatever little step you could take, you did that, which is also good. I mean, Although well, we're jumping, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump ahead many years and tell a story. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. And then we can go back to wherever you, you want to go. I will to. keep catching you back. You know, you, if you know me, okay. I'm going to keep getting you back. So I trust and <laughs> believe in you. Um, so, uh, and I was telling, I told the story to Sharice yesterday. Um, when I graduated from law school, this would have been in 1969, I was one of 250 lawyers who were given um, a working fellowship. And we went to work for legal aid, legal services projects throughout the United States. Um, I was uh, assigned to Newark, New Jersey, and, uh, and that's where I spent three and a half years. Um, but before we could go, we had the privilege of a four-week uh, extra training course. Now, we were already graduated from law school. We had already, none of us had actually been called to the bar yet because we had only just taken the exams necessary. So we hadn't, we didn't know um, the results, but we went on this four week course and uh, we learned about different areas of law that, had, that were most pertinent to people who were, who were racially and economically disadvantaged. And um, uh, we would occasionally have guest speakers who would come in, very influential people. It was wonderful. And one time we had a, um, a speaker, the woman's name was Florence Kennedy. And um, she was an African-American lawyer from New York City. We were, um, we were at a college campus just outside of Philadelphia uh, for this four weeks. And um, she came and uh, she was a firebrand of a human being. Um, she spoke brilliantly, eloquently, 
with passion, with wit, charm, humor. Um, she had us for an hour and a half. We were mesmerized. There, there literally was not a sound in the hall as we listened to her speak. She was glorious and we were so, we really benefited from her. But one of the memories I have, um, and she was quite flamboyant. She wore uh, uh, cowgirl hats, you know, um, weren't full Stetsons like the cowboys wear, but the, the female version of it. And she was all in canary yellow hat, suit, you know, and uh, so she stood out as well. You know, her, just everything about her said, pay attention, fools. I'm here to talk to you. Yes, boy, we paid attention. So at, at that time, there were um, the government, the federal government provided uh, payments to uh, families with dependent children. Uh, called welfare, uh, is how it was referring. <clears throat> and there were then welfare rights organizations, nonprofit groups, <clears throat> pardon me, that, set, that were set up in order to advocate for welfare recipients. And um, so when it was time for questions, one of, the, um, one of the people raised his hand and said, so I know that uh, I know where I'm going. I know the community I'm going to be in. And I know that one of the primary responsibilities I'll have is to work with the local welfare rights organization. Uh, what do you suggest I do to work with them? And she smiled and she looked at him with, it was sort of kind of bemused, kind of um, uh, curious expression on her face. And she said, I'll tell you what you do. She said, you know where the office is, right? Where the welfare rights? He says, yeah. He said, so you walk in, you introduce yourself, and then you ask where they keep the broom and the dustpan. And you clean up. He said, she said, don't think that just because you have a law degree, you know everything that you need to know about what they need. They'll tell you what they need and you respond because that's your job. And the way to get to know them is from the bottom up. Show them that you care about them, be humble, and then you can form a relationship. And it resonated with me so much. I mean, I can see, you know, you talked earlier, Vikram, about memories. I mean, this one is vivid in my mind, not just her and, and the way she spoke with us, but that story, because it seemed consistent with what I hope my values are, going back to, um, to my earliest years, is to recognize, to know that there is dignity in every person and that my job is to recognize and acknowledge it. I don't get, the dignity is theirs. It's my job to be attentive to it. But Michael, I always wondered this whole terminology of African-Americans, is that a terminology which you will continue or is it ever going to become Americans? <clears throat> you know, um, when, uh, when I was growing up, 
um, as I say, the, the dominant expression was colored as a way of describing it. Um, and, then, um, and then people within the black community, um, particularly in the, uh, in the early to late 60s, wanted to use the term black. And then um, because there were some uh, influential people who talked about, because, because every black person in the United States, virtually everyone, can trace her or his ancestry to a slave that was brought to the United States from Africa. And so the idea was, let's recognize our roots. Our roots are in Africa. We are Americans. We live here. We, you know, this is, this is part of, we're part of the culture but our heritage is in Africa. And I don't know when that will change. I think it's gonna be a long, long, long time before that changes because we have a lot of work to do in this country um, to uh, really eliminate the vestiges uh, of racism. Well, that according to me, that will work both ways because at one end, if you keep holding on to something, so whatever it could be heritage, it could be history, it could be whatever. Sometimes then maybe you just stay away from the larger group, but and if you don't stick to it, then you are maybe not recognized as a group. Maybe I don't know how it works, the dynamics it's, of that. But it's I, very true. I think you know from my limited knowledge of anthropology in this country, what has happened is that over generations. Um, uh, Italians, Irish, Germans who have immigrated to the United States um, think of themselves as Americans with an Irish heritage, a German heritage, an Italian heritage. And eventually, hopefully, that will happen in the sense that, that uh, Black people will be fully welcomed into and integrated into the country. Right now, that's not the case. And it continues to be the case. So I think, I think you're right in the sense that, that holding on to that terminology can also keep you apart. Yeah, I think so. Okay. But now, Michael, now you're saying that basically you have, I mean, are you going to give another 10 minutes is what you have? Or you, sure. Because what we can do is maybe at this point of time, your school and that school party and have all those black kids that you have, your friends, let's keep it at that. Let's open it out for people to ask you so that at least they can also get, get in into the conversation. So anyone wants to ask Michael anything, just put up your hand, virtual hand, please. And let's ask him because look, Lisa always has something to ask. Yes, Lisa. So and she, and she rarely gets a chance. She rarely gets a chance. Oh, right. <laughs> My <laughs> Vikram thinks I talk a lot, um, <laughs> and maybe I do. So, I, Michael, it was really fascinating hearing more about you than I ever knew, which is so much fun. It's so much fun to learn all of that. And I find that the diasporic traditions are so rich, actually when we hear the stories. Um, and again, I know my, my husband's family also, you know, came from Russia and through Sweden during the same time during those pogroms. So I, when I hear those stories and I'm in different parts of the world, I'm always amazed at that. 
And it seems to me like that's also provided you with a special understanding of the world that maybe other people don't have. So I'm going to take you back to that. Do you think that that has an extra influence and maybe that's helped you? I always switch it to, has that helped you as a mediator? Has that helped you be more reflective? Um, I don't know that it helped. I mean, I, I have to go back because... Mm -hmm. What helps me, I think, be a mediator are some of those early influences. Um, you know, Vikram, you started out by saying, you know, that that people come to mediation because they're essentially, I don't mean this in a religious sense, called <laughs> to it. That it's that there's something in their nature, in their values and their beliefs that that impel them. And I think that that where that affects me is a sense of fairness. Uh, but that's but that's a really powerful thing, powerful influence for me, and a sense of justice. Uh, you know, that's why I went to law school as well. You know, I went to law school in the '60s, at the height of the civil rights movement, and um, and I went because I believed I could do something meaningful. Um, so that sense of fairness and justice is is what plays out, I think a lot for me in, uh, in mediation. And, um, you know, that the fact that, you know, that um, my family managed to, or most of them managed to escape the Holocaust um, is an anchor in a way, but not a defining principle for me. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that's constant. It's sort of in my blood. It's there and I accept it. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a, a fish, you know, is unaware of the water it swims in. Well, I'm, una I, you know, I don't pay a lot of attention to that. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. And I'm very concerned about it in those sense. Yeah. Well, I think my, Michael, what basically the whole idea was that over these episodes, this there is going to be a common thread, thread between people with these mediators that I have. So I think justice and fairness is something which is a common thread, which I see which I think is important for everyone, but I think with the mediators that I've had on the show, I see that happening. There'll be, there'll be others which we'll come out with, but I think this is also important. And the kind yeah. of childhood that people have had, the kind of experiences with people around them, I think it's, there is something to that. Yeah, and, and, and do you have a, did you have a chicken story? Yeah, okay, that's another one. No, I'm going to mute you now. <laughs> basically, I think the Michael, the thing with I is that basically uh, it started with Ken. Ken told us about him selling chicken and eggs in his farm. Then we had someone else who came up with the chicken part of it. So that uh, Kathleen will also, she'll come later, she'll tell you about that. So there was some connection we were making with chicken. So after that, we had to first ask this question, where is the chicken in your story? I have to think about that. I don't think there is a chicken in my story. <laughs> we'll um, have to find that. We'll have to find it. But Gunasilan wanted to ask you something. One sec. Uh, yeah, Gunasilan, you want to unmute, unmute yourself? Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, you are talking about the, uh, you know, the holding on to the heritage and uh, how. I would like to know how you uh, came out of it, like from Romania, Eastern Europe, and Western Europe countries, your entire family had come from that side. Uh, in States, 
how do you get over this uh, heritage uh, not being on your shoulders how could yeah. you differentiate your experience with those of the persons whom he had come across like italians irish and the colored people i think that you know what's what's true about um people who have come from other countries um and who have who have managed to assimilate successfully into the country where they they no longer they they think of themselves as americans and then they acknowledge that they have a rich tradition and heritage and rituals and practices and stories and maybe even clothing um uh, the the thing they have in common is skin color you know i for example i never in the can't remember how old i was before i had my first experience of antisemitism i was a teenager at least because i don't have particularly semitic features i don't have a particularly semitic name and you know i look just like another white person and so people couldn't distinguish me in that sense and i think that's true for um for the irish the italians the germans the, the you know the scandinavians people who came from all over eastern europe from the balkans um from those areas you know that um that once we speak english like everybody else in this country speaks english you know we're in that sense we we don't have a thick accent that would distinguish us um it becomes easy to assimilate it isn't that you forget <clears throat> your heritage but you can easily slip into the mainstream of the society for people with darker skin and this is now becoming a problem for um Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders um uh as it has been for native american people um uh in this country that is you know when you can distinguish somebody by skin color or some other feature uh it's a lot harder to assimilate it's easier to be discriminated against to be defined as other um yeah um so i i think that's what's that to me that's in my in my personal experience and from what i've read that's what's happened okay you know when like kathleen yeah kathleen will always has something to ask she always has some question kathleen you want to ask anything my <laughs> <laughs> dear so it's lovely listening to you speak michael thank you so much for everything you've shared and your pictures are just glorious It reminds me of when you walk into people's homes they have their pictures up the stairwell of their house around the corner and you get to just watch their lives go by and um it's really really great. I do have a story about excuse me a question not much chicken story. I have a question about your career. I'm wondering if you found yourself pivoting throughout your career with certain issues with as I believe all mediators we have growth as we continue to mediate. Did you find yourself more pivoting or did experiences and growth make you deepen your career somehow somewhere or was it a combo? Um pretty much a combination. Um mm. you know, for example, when I got to Newark, I was a newly minted lawyer. One of my early clients 
was um, a woman who was the president of the Poor and Dissatisfied Tenants Organization. Mm -hmm. And for three and a half years, I represented tenants um, as a result of that experience. I had limited, in law school, I'd done some clinic work, um, but I, it, that became everything I did. I represented tenants organizations, tenants groups. I was part, I was a lawyer representing a group that was the largest single rent strike in public housing history and the longest lasting. Um, it lasted even beyond my tenure in Newark. Um, and my, the job I then uh, held in Maine, where I moved, was with a, an agency where I was intended to be started out as a tenant advocate within this agency um, and eventually became general counsel. And that led me to, you know, and so things evolved. But then there were, there were moments. And um, for example, um, I was offered the opportunity to participate and this would have been in about 1975. 76 maybe, um, to participate in a training program run by a local therapist um, learning transactional analysis and gestalt therapy. Oh, wow. Not many people remember transactional my, my. analysis. <laughs> it's from it's really gestalt the therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for three years, I studied, and I was the only non-therapist in the group. So it was a real privilege to be there. That shifted my thinking. It transformed the way in which I thought about the divorce clients whom I was seeing in my small town legal practice. And, um, and that was a pivotal moment. From there, I did more and more and more. But that's starting in 1975. It changed. I, I used to describe, Kathleen, that the difference was that as a lawyer, you operate like a laser beam. Your focus yeah. is sharp, intense, mm -hmm. can be relatively narrow. And I don't mean that the lawyers are narrow-minded. I just mean that the necessary focus of the work is quite narrow. And what I began to experience through the, the, um, the training group was that I could act like a floodlight <laughs> instead. And, and more of the picture would emerge and shadows would appear. And it got a very different sense about what was happening in families than just who gets the house, who gets the kids. Mm -hmm. All of those are very important, but there's so much more. And so there are those, uh, I had a, uh, in 1992, early 92, I had been on the, the board of the Academy of Family Mediators, an organization that doesn't exist now, it was, it was subsumed into and made part of ACR, Association for Conflict Resolution. And um, the executive director um, sent a fax to all of, the, um, all of the board members announcing that there was a, um, this job opening at Antioch University. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I've always wanted to teach. I always had done teaching on a limited basis. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did is I called the head of the search committee and I said, look, I don't have a PhD. I have a JD. I've got lots of experience. Can I apply? 
And she said, mm -hmm. just being Antioch, she said, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> and I got the job. And that was another pivotal moment. And, uh, you know, just it, it so um, nurtured me because I now had an institutional framework within which to function. Uh, mm -hmm. made a tremendous difference. Yeah. So there, Joanne, and there are more. Yeah. No. Joanne had something she wanted to ask you. Joanne, you want to? Yeah. Yes, Joanne, you have to ask. Okay, okay. Good morning again, um, Good morning. Mr. Lang. I'm so excited to reunite with you again after many years. I saw you the first time in 94 when I came into the country with a letter from Nigerian Peace Committee to get a scholarship from Antioch. And you graciously helped me to go through. And I had to wait for like three years for my transcripts to come in from Nigeria because there was um, a strike. Students were about the annulment of the June 12th election. So the country was really going through a turbulent time and it affected my getting my transcripts. Eventually I got into the program in 97 and then you had left. So I just want to say that going to Antioch was very helpful. I got good exposure. I love the um, individualized learning method that was a top head that helped me to go to take classes from Rice State University. I took classes from other schools. I really got good exposure. And I've been very active since then. I went back to Nigeria in 99. I've been working. I was uh, a lot of the time I was with the NGO. I work for international organizations. And gradually I went back to Joanne, Joanne, this is Michael's show. Your show will discuss you. Okay. You have to ask him yes, a question. Okay, okay, yes, okay. Yes. I, just, I just want to give him a no, little. No, 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 no. It's okay. We'll get your background later. We'll do okay. it in your show. Your show. Okay, yeah. but my question, my question yeah. for uh, Mr. Lang actually is, you know, being aware of the strength of the color of the skin, that's race, and the implication for justice. I don't know what advice you have for younger generations. For a very long time, race has always been there, but it was a little subtle. People tend not to say, okay, I'm actually against you, but it's not like today's world anymore where it is so overt. People can easily know, you can easily show your res resentment for any group. Either you don't like the Asians or you don't like African-Americans or you don't like white people. People just show a lot of hate. And I want to ask, how, what advice do you have for younger mediators who will, be, who, who will keep seeing this problem coming up? Because it's there with us. Uh, much of the legislations to control race, you can see the recent one that the president just signed anti-Haitian uh, 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 bill to stop uh, no hatred for Asian people since mm -hmm. after the COVID issue that the former president called Chinese virus. So what advice as a peace mediator or conflict mediator, what would you advise younger generations or people who are into it? How do you manage race? How do you pursue justice in the face of this apparent and resentment for the other race? This time, nobody is actually too safe. Oh, will you answer, John? <laughs> 
how will he answer if you don't finish your question let him answer <laughs> if you are he's got your question he's got your question yeah as, well as well i'll answer i'll i'll give you a very brief um answer and um recognizing also the time i'm going to have to end shortly um you know john i think the rage is important it's there it's a passion because there's things to be rageful about the sense of injustice that continues to exist deserves to be raged against to rail against not to do violence over but i think it's important that one of the things that we mediators have to be careful not to do is to suppress that um you know there's a real challenge in our field that that we want to harmonize we want to make things even we want to make things uh helpful for people and we have to be really careful not to damp down someone's passion uh, you know but to really respect the origins of it and the legitimacy of it um and so that's that's one thing the second i think for mediators oh and there's by the way there's another wonderful book that speaks exactly to this journey that um a colleague of mine has uh, has uh, edited it's called more justice more peace and the entire focus of the book there are 14 or 15 brilliant just exquisite essays um every one of them is speaking about what happens when a mediator feels passionate about an issue of justice and is also asked to be a third party a new a supposed neutral neutral yeah uh-huh. it's an exceptional book um and uh i i can vikram i'll provide you with the information and you can share it um okay. yeah um uh, susan terry is the one who had it but the the yeah Yeah, so yeah, later i think another another one another, another episode will discuss the neutrality aspect also we'll take that up later yeah. and I so the other thing yeah. i think that's really critical is the story that i told about florence kennedy is that if we're going to do this work well and we're going to be in the presence of people who are understandably embittered angry frustrated just whatever adjective you want to apply two things apply one you have to be humble uh we have to respect that i don't have the answer i haven't a clue what the answer ought to be for the society nor especially for the individual sitting in front of me um i don't and it has to come not just because our standards say we don't provide answers to people but it comes because we honor the dignity of each person to make the choices for themselves that it's their choice not ours to tell them what to do. And the second, I have this wonderful um lapel button I picked up this to be 30 years ago now at some conference I bought it probably for 50 cents. And um it's a yellow button, black lettering, in the middle it says mediator in large letters and around the rim it says when I listen people talk. and that's the other thing that we as mediators need to do ask good questions and then sit back 
and respectfully listen to what the answers are. But those are, those are some keys. Uh, the, the question you asked, Joan, is for um, uh, a week-long conversation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. it's, profound, it's profound and it's huge. So yeah. I don't pretend that, that my answers are uh, meet the need of the question. They're just simple answers. You know, from my heart. Michael, Adriana has something to ask you. Well, we have to make this the last yeah, one. Last one, last one, last uh, one. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, you just answered my question. Okay. Uh, okay. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to ask that something similar. Uh, since you said that uh, your biggest drive, greatest drive, and motivation is uh, uh, justice and fairness. And uh, I forgot to mention at the beginning, I'm a lawyer too. And uh, I'm very much interested in the subjects of uh, human rights and protection of human rights. And I really feel that uh, injustice. And uh, I was just uh, uh, thinking about how uh, you reconcile your legal way of thinking with mediators way of, way of, of thinking in this um, in these uh, situations when there are, there are high tensions uh, in uh, conflicts and relations. And uh, when you um, see something as unjust, uh, injust or I don't know, unfair, how do you reconcile that? And how, what's your approach to that? Again, another extraordinary question, um, Ajana. Um, so I'll just, again, um, if we do a second one of these to come, yes. well, let's go back to these questions because they, are, they are so fundamental to our practice because the question you ask can apply to two neighbors who are arguing about something that one neighbor has done to the other or alleges has done to the other. And they can be as, as grand as um, you know, a, a wholesale injustice to a large group of people. So the principles that, that I think apply, uh, I think apply differently, but they're the same, which is I have to remember why I'm doing what it is that I'm doing. What's my, what's my goal here, me as the mediator, not just there. So A, it's gotta be their goal, but for me, I operate on the principle of human dignity. And I respect that they may make stupid decisions, decisions that are not in their best interest. And yeah, but, yeah. I, it's not my job to dissuade them of that, but it is my job to help them think carefully about the consequences of those decisions. I can play what, uh, what I think of as an agent of reality. I can help walk people through if you make this choice, let's look at what's likely to happen, what you think is likely to happen. Think through it carefully because it isn't just a decision for today. It's a decision that has implications for tomorrow and perhaps a year or 10 years. How do you want this to be? How do you want to see yourself and your experience five years from now, not just tomorrow? I know you want to be rid of this dispute. I know you want to get out of it. I know you want to have it done. I know you want a solution. But let's make sure that the solution is one that really works 
for you that's durable and meaningful and uh, respectful to you. That's the best I can do. I have to put that lawyer side of me aside and say, I have a different way of fighting for justice. And my way of fighting for justice is to ask those really probing, not challenging, but, but probing questions to help somebody think through and to be patient with them as they struggle with the answers to those questions, as they struggle sometimes, even with whether they're willing to answer those questions, because that's sometimes as hard to even think about those consequences. And so as I said, yeah. it's a brief, um, heartfelt, yeah, brief answer, and, and ultimately insufficient to the, to the gravity and the enormity of the question that both you and Joan have asked. Because what basically, uh, Michael, we will never lose focus of the fact that we are going to go through your journey of life. This is something, look, everyone wants to ask these questions, which I don't actually normally get into. But these are things that it's a very different aspect, which you already keep discussing. We have to discuss you and your life. So we're going to go back to that when we, whenever next we're going to fix, I'll fix up a date with you whenever it's available. We'll have to do when it. Just let me know. I will make myself available. This has been such an unexpected, I mean, I was expecting a, a wonderful experience and this has so far exceeded even my wildest expectations. You can't imagine. That's um, really nice. That's really nice. Because it's touched my heart, um, not just my mind. Absolutely so thank nice. you all. So, so you're going to give us a date in a Saturday in July. So you'll have to I give will. us whatever, whatever Saturday you want to give us in July. First one, if possible. You will you will hear from me today. Perfect. Perfect. Well, tomorrow your time. But today. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. It was a joy. It was very Thanks. nice having you. And Bye. continue your journey. Thanks. All right. So you people can definitely stay with the whole.